Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. Um, It is the 10th anniversary of Monday Night Philosophy, which we're going to talk about, and the topic is the Commonwealth of Ideas. Um, And I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. Now, how did Monday Night Philosophy get started? Well, the name, I think, gives it all away. Um, I thought of the idea long, long ago after Monday Night Football got started. And I thought, how can I, you know, strip away a lot of attention from Monday Night Football, you know, bring their audience down a bit. So I thought Monday Night Philosophy ought to do that. Probably can at least strip 40, 50 people off <laughs> every Monday night. Um, so uh, I thought of it then, and I was living in New York, and uh, I did it a couple of times at the uh, public library and uh, bookstore, m- maybe four or five times uh, during those years. And when I moved out here in 2000, um, I settled down for a year, and then I asked people, what do you have like the 92nd Street Y in, in San Francisco? What do you have like the big bookstores? And they, everybody said the Commonwealth Club. So um, I came over to check it out, and you know, the motto was up on the wall. The motto is, you know, our, our you know, attempt is just to take the truth and let it loose in the world. And I said, well, that sounds very philosophical. That's good. Uh, found out it was a public affairs forum, but not a f- philosophical one. Um, but then they called all of these sections uh, forums. And, of course, Socrates went and spoke in forums. So I thought, okay, this is a perfect place to, to uh, do my experiment, my Monday Night Philosophy experiment. So I, I turned in my idea to, to uh, George Dobbins, still here as the vice president, and, and he turned it over to one of the section leaders, Rosemary Wright. And uh, she said, sure, we can try that. Uh, but she said, you know, it's philosophy. You might get 10 people, might 15. If you don't mind that, we'll do it a couple of times. So I said, sure. So we, we did it twice in 2002, and we got about 25 people, something like that. So she said, that's good enough. Uh, and we set up a series uh, for the next three years, actually. Uh, 2003, 2004, 2005, we did four in a row, four in a row, three in a row uh, lectures with a series of ideas in, in, in this. And in 2003, when I gave it, um, we started this, that series with the pursuit of happiness, one of the you know, really big, important ideas. Um, and that one actually went, went on to NPR, uh, the radio, and so on and so forth. And that happened to be for my 50th birthday, so I figured, you know, that was. Actually, you know, it's, it's one of the strange things uh, about, you know, what I like to do is that I've always celebrated my birthday by giving a lecture at the Commonwealth Club. You know, I guess I just don't like cake well enough. Uh, so, so... Um, that's sort of the history uh, of, of how it came here. So now for 10 years and about almost 120 lectures, we've missed a couple months, but that's it. Uh, we've had a lecture every month for 10 years. Invited mostly uh, other speakers to come in and talk about some area. And we, we, we have a pretty broad idea about what philosophy is. It talks about anything that talks about the ideas behind something that's going on, whether it's local history or, or, or biography, but something that gives us a little illumination into the ideas. Because I think... One of the things that is not really clear uh, to a lot of people is how important the ideas are that underlie our cultures. The, th- the, the thoughts that are behind it are really crucial. Um, and it really makes a big difference as to how we all live our lives because our cultures are based upon ideas. And the ideas you know, are sunk so deep in the culture that people usually don't notice them. So I'm going to talk about a couple of really big... I mean, I'm, there are 
literally thousands of ideas that are deeply sunk in our culture. I'm going to definitely edit that down a bit. But I'm going to go back and talk about some of the really big ideas. And before I do that, I want to talk about the basic idea I have about how to analyze this whole situation. So I, I, in my 20s, I spent a lot of time trying to, to figure out what was useful and what was not useful in ideas that had been passed down. And I, I, I started to see a pattern. Uh, and, and in time, I got the pattern clearer, and I won't tell you how I went through it all because that would take more than an hour or two. But the pattern is very simple. Most of you know about bell curves, bell curve distributions of different things. So I saw that there was a bell curve distribution of human personality, basically. So, so there's a big bell curve distribution of human personality, what we kind of do as personalities, uh, how we've chosen. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think a, a, a personality is, too. Our personalities are sort of our individual culture that we have come to in our pursuit of happiness and avoidance of pain. You know, in order to, to pursue happiness and avoid pain, we have made certain decisions over time, and now our personalities are the way they are. And so you may, people, people say, oh, it's very important for my personality that, say, I, I'm, I'm, I believe in this one particular religion. Say, uh, we'll, we'll pick Jainism, since probably there aren't any in here. Uh, so I'm, I'm a Jain, and that really influences my personality. But what influences your personality much more than your uh, intellectual beliefs or emotional beliefs about life are fundamental ideas you have, like are you a pessimist or an optimist? Do you think that you can control things that happen, or do you think you have absolutely no control over your life whatsoever? And I, I think it can explain a little bit where some of this comes from. If you just think about it for a little while, we basically, if you go back more than 5,000 years ago in the human race, and, and, and the human race had been around for hundreds of thousands of years before that in, in, in a relatively similar physical form, and before that for millions of years in, in also similar, but you know, not exactly the same sort of forms. So we've been living life for a long time, but most people, basically their personalities are in survival mode. Right? You, you want to survive. You do whatever you can to survive, that's what drives your, your, your desires, your, your pursuit. And it's the same pursuit, the pursuit of happiness, avoiding pain, but you basically make survival the most important thing in your life. And it, it has taken something unusual in human culture to take, take us away from that, to make us do more than that, to think of more things than just to survive. And survival, very interestingly, of course, is an individual thing. But it also was responsible for why communities became very concerned about their survival. And I'll talk about that before, because it's a projection by a bunch of individuals onto the community of that. Now, see, we, we talk about the community needs this, or our nation needs this, or something. But the nation has no experience whatsoever, right? There is no nation that is experiencing anything. The nation is not happy or unhappy or anything at all. It doesn't experience anything. Only individuals experience things. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But that's part of, part of what, what I was seeing. And the other thing is, in order, you know, a lot of people, oh, first, let me do the bell curve, and then I'll explain that one. So the bell curve distributes us. And if you ask somebody at this end, and I'm, I'm, I suppose that it might be slightly prejudicial to say this about, but psychopaths and sociopaths are sort of at this end of the spectrum. And when they look at the world, if you ask a sociopath or a psychopath what they think of the human race or what they think of life, well, they basically say human beings are too good to be true. They're naive. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. And so they're very easy to manipulate, and I can always get what I want. 
out of them because they really are easily fooled, right? That's, that's how they think. You take somebody right in the middle of the bell curve and say, what do you think of humanity? And they say, they're all right. They're good. You know, everybody has their faults. Everybody has their weaknesses, but everybody's pretty good. You know, everybody's all right. And then you ask the people at the far end of the spectrum, Say, let's just put all the top scientists and artists and, and, and uh, religious leaders and poets and musicians and so on and so forth. We'll just kind of put them all down there. See? Ask them, what do they think of humanity? And it only takes about three seconds. They really don't know what they're doing. They need help. We need a 12-step program. We need Ten Commandments. We need something to get them in shape so that they can at least have some idea about how to pursue happiness. Right? So that's that far end. And and what I found interesting, especially because I was doing a lot of work on Plato's theories, so Plato's out over here, a philosopher, and he looked forward in this direction, not towards humanity, but in this direction and said, this is what would be ideal for everybody. The Repub- he wrote The Republic and so on and so forth. So he, he was already out here, and then he was going over here to try to define things and move forward. And I thought, that's the wrong direction. You know, I mean, you're not talking about our life. You're talking about your imagination. And I saw that by that. I came up with an idea called the imagination's horizon. Wherever you are, you look forward, and your imagination has a horizon. And however fast you're moving forward, actually, the further your horizon can be. So the people at this end actually have a further horizon than people in the middle. And so their imagination is further away from reality than, than the people who are in the middle of the pack of, of the human race. And, and everybody kind of knows that without really saying it, you know, because we admire these people, but we think they're fools, you know, or, or, or at least don't have any idea what we're really like. Um, we're happy that they love us and are, are spending time on us, but we don't think they just have missed a point, you know, or, or we're really not, not reliable, uh, their, their evidence about us. So I found that interesting, too. So I stepped back from it all, and I said, what, what's in common for everybody? And we're not going into that tonight, but that's how I stepped back from that thing. Um, the other interesting thing about that is if you, if you have this sort of negative attitude towards everybody else, and not negative, but at least you, you need help sort of thing instead of, you, you know, no matter what your situation is, you really don't want to be pitied because it sort of implies they don't think too much of you, right? You know? <laughs> and so, so pity is useful under certain circumstances, but most of the time we really don't want to be pitied. But that is basically what this end of, of, of the human race does for us. So if we step back again further and and look at the whole planet and say, okay, what's going on on this planet? And and so, as I said, they have kind of a negative attitude towards the human race. The human race isn't doing too well. So when you step back like this, you can get a totally different viewpoint about the human race. And I'm going to say that now. It's a philosophical viewpoint, but if you look at our planet and you look at all the minds that are making decisions on this planet and, and, and I know that human beings don't like to be put in with the animals, but the animals all make decisions too. So there are quadrillions of insects. They're all survival mode. Now, we maybe, maybe when the crickets are making noise, they're actually trying to make music and they maybe have a culture about this, but it's probably not likely. They probably, it's just survival mode and they're trying to mate like we think they are and so on and so forth. And maybe they've got very elaborate languages we don't know about. Maybe, maybe, but let's just assume for now that, that they are in survival mode. So we've got quintillions of minds pursuing happiness and avoiding pain just on survival alone. And now, 
What distinguishes any kind of animal from that? Well, let's pick out the mammals. The mammals seem to spend a certain amount of time on their families, right? They have a certain amount of pleasure in helping their families survive. We're not fish. We don't just spawn and eat half of them and then go away, you know, with our children. We don't do that. We, do, we have a, a much more uh, elaborate viewpoint on humanity, I mean, on, on our fellow members. So the mammals are, are designed for there to be an emotional connection to their children, etc., etc. So you could say that they're already moving a little bit away from individual survival mode into family survival mode. So that would make the mammals the elite of all of the minds on the planet. And of course, the human beings are even more elaborate than the rest of the mammals, both in everything, you know, if you say that certain mammals have these great, uh, you know, um, uh, mating dances, other rituals and stuff like that, that, that doesn't, you know, come anywhere close to Elvis Presley, right? You know, we're, we're, we're much more elaborate in our approach to all of this stuff than anybody else. And so, and, and we have much more uh, ability, not, not everybody, but most people have the ability to spread out and have concern for people way beyond their family and try to do something about it. Um, it reminds me, when I came to San Francisco, uh, I was at a party, and uh, there was a woman from, from the Sierra Club there. Um, and she said, oh, you're new to San Francisco. I said, yeah, I came from New York. And she said, oh, well, in New York, you don't understand anything about this. But let me explain to you that the Earth actually can only tolerate one billion human beings. It can't hold any more than that. It, it, it'll, it'll fall apart. And I said, oh, that's very interesting. Um, and, and are you sure about that? She said, absolutely. And I said, okay, um, do you have a plan to get us from where we are at 7.5 billion to there? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, if you say it can only hold a billion, you must have some way to get there. And I can tell you that if you do have a plan like that, there are three or four guys in the 20th century who tried, they tried very hard and only could take down 20, 30, 40 million. Um, and so six and a half billion is going to be a lot of work. Um, and, and those guys aren't popular. So, you know, try to explain to me uh, you know, how you're going to get us from here to there. And there actually is a way to get, a, a, a nice way to get from there, and not nice, but, you know, you could cut it down so that it took 200 years and, and you just limited the number of children during that period of time, you know, like a more extreme version of China. And it would be messy for a long time, but you could, you could get back to a billion without killing people directly. So, but she, she, she hadn't thought of that. What an advantage. Yes, that's a big advantage. So there's that. But you, you have humanity thinking about big issues like this. Lots of people think about big issues like that. Um, and so we're not in survival mode. Now, you could say, probably say, out of the 7.5 billion, how many are still in survival mode? Maybe half? Something like half. Maybe a third? Something like that. So a large number of our 7.5 billion people are still in survival mode. Some are not. So how did we get out of survival mode? We seem to be the only ones. Other, I mean, the mammals have their families, and we have our families. But other than that, it seems to us, from our observation, that we're the only ones that have gotten as elaborate and sophisticated in our way of looking at our lives as that. So I think there are a couple of really big ideas that did that. So that's what, I'm here, that's what I want to talk about. So I'd say the first thing is, when we started to think that we could do more than survive, when we were aware of that, that we're doing more than just surviving, we wanted to understand why we were surviving. We wanted to explain it to ourselves. We wanted to, to know more about it, and we wanted to not make the same mistakes that we made all the time. 
And so history, I think, is one of the first ideas that we should pay attention to history. We should, we should tell stories about what we've done. So the first thing we do is we tell legends, you know, most, mostly legendary things. But we first start telling stories so that we can learn from what we've done before. Right? So I think that first idea of history, and that's why it's interesting, there's the myths of prehistory, as they say, and then history gets started around 5,000 years ago. And before that, it's totally legendary. And at that, what, what the difference between history and legend is sort of like being a little bit more realistic. A little bit more, not very much more realistic. You read, you read Herodotus and half of it seems realistic and half of it seems imaginary. So uh, the process of changing over time is, but that's one idea. And it's interesting that although that idea has really shifted the human race away from survival mode, it also is something that people are still upset about and try to change. Not change history, but don't want people to pay attention to history, want to erase history because history doesn't match the way they think things should be. And so you want to erase that history, whereas actually you'll learn from the history to, if you ever learn from anything, you're going to learn from that in order to know how to solve that problem. But we don't have to talk about that tonight. But that's the first big idea, I think, that started to shift us away from that. Now, the result of that, history. So we started telling these stories, and we started to get a little bit more elaborate in our explanations than we were before. Before, it was sort of like... Uh, you know, a turtle was on his back and that, uh, the, the stars came out of uh, his toes and, and uh, something came out of his head and that's what created the universe. Um, you know, or, or that there were a bunch of giants like the Greeks thought and, and there was a war and, and due to them all being killed, but what was left of them was turned into the human race. It, it's not very biologically accurate, um, but it is, it is a theory about how to explain what's going on. So we, we started to have these legends that came up. But the interesting thing was a little bit of time passed and history started to get mixed in with the legends. We started to have historical elements to the legends. Actual real people were involved. Actual real stories were told. And then, and then there was uh, obviously elaborations that were not accurate. But that started to take place. So history was starting to gain some ground against legend. Um, it's very interesting, though, that almost all of those religious legends that were created, what were they doing? they were promising survival. They were promising survival after death, mostly. But they were promising survival. So it really was still appealing to survival mode uh, thinking, that you're, you think you need to survive. Now, why do we think we need to survive? Whether we do or not, it's a totally different question. But why do we think that we should? Because we are afraid of being unhappy if we don't you know, keep living, Right? You don't, want to be un, you don't want to be dead and unhappy that you're dead and don't exist anymore. But the irony of that, of course, is that you don't have any emotions when you're dead. You don't experience anything. You cannot be unhappy. So if you actually die and don't exist, you can't be unhappy, so you, can't, you don't have to be afraid of it. That's the irony. And of course, it, it, it's actually more likely that you'll be unhappy if you continue to exist when you didn't expect to um, than, than, than the other way around. Um, so... Uh, that's an interesting part of the survival mode uh, theory uh, of life and trying to live that part of life and how history shifted with legends and history sort of interacted with religious ideas. And then we, the closer, of course, we come uh, as time goes by, there's more and more history, more and more identifiable history. And then we start having dates and, you know, we have a really clear idea about what things went first and what things didn't go first. So the next big idea that I see, is democracy. 
And why is democracy a big idea? Because it's being individualistic. You know, it's now thinking not what is good for the survival of the whole group, because that's where the survival mode was. First, it's our own individual survival, but then you're thinking about the survival of the whole group. Now, it occurred to people, you know, very clearly that you, your individuals don't survive, right? People, every, every individual dies other than a few people in the legends. Um, everyone, you know, doesn't survive, but the community itself can survive. And so, in a way, the attempt to create a culture that will survive is something that is created by a projection of our own desire to survive, Right? And so we create these cultures, and it's very interesting what is true about the cultures. Because the cultures are also a projection of our own pursuit of happiness, our own individual thing. And in this case, there's sort of a consensus. Each culture is a consensus of that group of how to pursue happiness and how to avoid pain. And almost everything has been tried. You, know, you can say, oh, there's only this one way to do things. And a lot of people who grew up in a culture and don't think of, haven't studied anything think that's the only way that you can possibly be happy. Um, you know, my parents certainly felt that way about their family culture. The only way to be happy is to have you know, a dozen children. You know, it really is not at the top of the list of everybody else. You know, that's not really what they think is how they're going to be happy. Um, but that was for my parents, and they succeeded. So uh, I'm not sure they succeeded being happy, but they got the 12 kids. <laughs> So every, every big culture is sort of a consensus. And there's always dissenters, of course, in every culture, too, saying, well, I like this part and this part, but I don't like that part. That doesn't make any sense. That's not the way to be happy. And so, but, you, but you have this consensus. And over the last 5,000 years, there have been thousands of fairly successful cultures. right? And those cultures have said... The way to be happy in, in, in Babylon is, you know, we have this structure, we have the king, we have this hierarchy and stuff like that, and we have, you know, temple prostitutes. That's what we have for our religion, and you can work your way up in this way, either as a prostitute or as a John. I suppose they didn't call them Johns, but, you know, you can work your way up this way, and, and you'll be happy the higher you get. You know, it's almost like Boy Scouts. Uh, you know, you get this badge, you get the next badge and everything, and we, we have that in almost all cultures. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a second when I get past democracy. But there is something about that that's very interesting that Pythagoras started to, to, to do, and that's my next idea. So democracy is there telling us that we don't need to have somebody in charge, that we really are making this up as we go along. Now, almost all the time before, the person, people in charge said, no, this was divinely ordained. I'm in charge. I get to tell you exactly what I'm thinking. And so a lot of people did not argue against that. Um, they just wanted to survive. They didn't want to have a fight with the way things are. Uh, but eventually, uh, some thinkers started to have a fight with the way things are and said, there's really no reason why you should be in charge. Usually, the person who said that then said, I'm the one who should be in charge. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that they were in favor of everybody being in charge or some kind of rational way of doing it. They said, no, I should be in charge, not you. But eventually, you know, when, when an, you know, there was enough change in, in one year that 10 guys had said it and they all knocked each other off, somebody was standing back going, you know, maybe... Nobody should be in charge. You know, something like that. So anyway, the democracy idea had, had its roots deep in smaller groups, but in big cities, you know, very rarely. So we got there uh, in ancient Greece right around the same time that Pythagoras uh, was getting started. And what was his idea that was so unusual? His idea that was so unusual was we have just been going by our belief or our imagination is basically a, a better way of saying it. 
And, and in ancient Greece, the whole idea is beauty versus truth. What's more important, beauty or truth, beauty or truth? And that's really the same argument as what's more important, your imagination or using reason to do things. And what Pythagoras found was that if you use reason, you can create a, a, a provable function, something that you can prove in mathematics. Now, you can't prove things outside of mathematics. A lot of people want to prove everything and say, well, there's no proof for that. Well, we have reliable evidence, but not proof for all kinds of things that we accept. Lots of theories in science are, are really not proven yet. We use them all the time, and they're very reliable, but there's no proof for it because math only proves certain things based on fir- certain prin- first principles. Um, but still, that idea really got started with Pythagoras, uh, that you can prove something, and therefore you can have an idea that's distinguished. Now I want to go into an idea that, 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 that was the second big idea, that, that started a, sh- a third big idea, history, and then democracy, and then reason. And the, th- the third one, I'm going to go back to reason in a second, but the third one came w- just uh, 100 years later with Plato, and that was education. That, you can, that it's actually a good idea to try to lead people out of where they are into another mode. So I go back to the question is, you know, if, if we are a bell curve like this, can we shift that bell curve at all? Can we move our personalities as a, as a race or even individually? Can we shift the way we actually think? Education is one of those ideas. Can we, let's try and see whether we can shift this and how, how are we going to do it? So and I'm going to go back to the reason idea. Um, if you analyze what's going on with the cultures, as I just said, and the cultures are a consensus of a group in their pursuit of happiness and the avoidance of pain, if that's what's going on, then there, you can distinguish between cultures and the inherent pattern in something. The inherent pattern in something. Just like that was what, what uh, Pythagoras started to go for. The inherent pattern. He talked a lot about numbers. It was very mathematical. That was what got him excited. Um, Plato took it differently uh, you know, and moved it out into more conceptual ideas. He called them eternal ideas. Right now, we just have concepts. And what's very interesting about the, I mean, that's all the same idea developing over time. What's interesting about concepts is it, it, it creates a, a, it shows us what a pattern is. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, pi, the, the, the mathematical concept pi. It is the exact relationship between the diameter of a circle and the circumference of a circle. So the outside of a circle and the diameter. And it, one, if you multiply the diameter times pi, it gives you the circumference. The distance comes, okay? Now, that number is 3.14159, bup, 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 bup. You know, it, it is not a, what we would call a precise number from an integral point of view, but it is a very precise relationship. A very precise. It doesn't ever change. And therefore, every circle with a diameter, anywhere, anywhere in the universe at any time, that is a pattern which is always the same. And that was what got Pythagoras excited. Those kind of ideas. First thing you can get your, your hands on and say, this is really what's going on. And now you're not too, math usually doesn't make people excited. It's the concept behind math that, gets, that got him excited. And, and that Plato, as I said, started to apply to, can we, can we define happiness in a way like that? Can we see the pattern here? Can we, and, I, and I think he failed at doing that uh, because he was trying to define way out here. As I said before, his idea was, his imagination was taking him way out here. He was trying to define what it would be like for pure happiness, for perfect happiness, and so on and so forth, instead of saying, what's in common for what we all experience. So that had to come later. But in this, in this distinction, we can find a very interesting uh, difference between cultures, which are laid on top of the inherent patterns, and the inherent patterns themselves. 
And one of the most interesting things that I've found from the difference is that an inherent pattern never has any rewards or punishments built into it. It's just a description. It's an explanation. Every culture, every culture, whether it's religious or political or anything, it always has rewards and punishments built in. Why? Because cultures is, are how we try to conform other minds to what we want them to do. And that's, our, that, that's how our incentive structure for them is to give them rewards or punishments based upon that. So anything in an, which is attempting to be an explanation of life, which has rewards and punishments in it, is really just a culture. And if our society recognized that, it would be a lot easier for us to all get along, actually, because we'd realize, oh, this is just the way we have a pursued happiness. And this is the way we want people to behave. And that's the way you learned over the last couple thousand years to get people to behave. And you let us over here do what we want to do, and we'll let you overdo. And we can see that the pattern that underlies both of us is actually the same. And it's all right. You know, we're going to keep doing it this way. But it's interesting. The clearer you have the pattern, the more you actually shift the way you think about the culture and how to pursue happiness. That's another, another whole topic, of course. But it's interesting to draw that distinction between the inherent patterns and that. And the inherent patterns are, just like Plato said, they're eternal. Eternal is a big word, but all it really should mean, what the pattern is, is it's uninfluenced by the process of change. We have a continuum of change going on all the time. There are some things that are uninfluenced by that process. Now, cultures are influenced by it totally all the time. But pi is totally uninfluenced by every change that goes on. And any other rules like that, and the patterns in our happiness, I think, are like that too. What, what constitutes happiness? And I'll, I'll give just that one example. The elements of happiness are that it's the emotion caused by the fulfillment of a desire. So you have desires. You have the emotional reaction to your fulfillment of that desire. That's what's common to all forms of happiness. It's a simple pattern, uh, and, and, uh, but it, it, it's applied differently to, in every individual life, just the same as pi. So those kind of rules really don't change. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Education. Education was Plato's idea because he was, you know, it's a kind of a funny thing because it was his own illusion, his own imagination that made him come up with an idea that has been very useful to us. But if you, if you go back to, to Plato's Republic, and as I said, his imagination said, this is where I want everybody to be. It's way out over here. How am I going to get all these people over here to get out over here? Well, one thing I have to do is I at least have to educate the leaders. And uh, those of you who aren't familiar with the Republic, he has a very strange idea for how to educate the leaders. He wants them to study mathematics for 20 years. That's one of the things he thought would be very useful for getting leaders to understand how to be good leaders of a civilization that, that's, that's more enlightened. And the reason, of course, is that they'd be more rational about things, but also that they would see the patterns that are real and not be fooled by the patterns that aren't real or, or illusionary, or at least not even illusionary, but simply that we made up and therefore aren't as reliable as the ones that are inherent. So education, which means to draw out, 
uh, he had a, a very interesting analogy for it, which uh, people don't focus on very much because it's, it doesn't fit our culture. Um, and that is, he said that education uh, is like um, a charioteer uh, driving a, 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 a chariot with two horses. Um, one is the pursuit of, uh, they're both in the pursuit of beauty, and one is idealistic and the other is lust. He said, you can use either one to move yourself forward in the pursuit of beauty. And, and uh, you, you, the, the, the trick is to get them trained so that they ride together ahead towards the pursuit of beauty and therefore towards the pursuit of truth because he always thought that truth would, would come after you pursued beauty. Um, and everyone kind of knows how lust is connected to the pursuit of beauty. So uh, he was saying you can use something else to make yourself to, as an inducement to create something else, to, to lead somebody out, and suddenly they come for one thing and you, get, you hand them something else. It's a little bit like, you know, happens in advertising all the time. So uh, you, you, you lead somebody out with a different uh, motive and then you give them education. Now, education, reason, history. History has been going on for 5,000 some years. Sometimes we like it, sometimes we get rid of it. Most cultures get rid of it sometimes, you know, for a while. And we have certainly gone through periods of time when almost all history was thrown out, except for in a few areas, those uh, societies held on to parts of that history. And then uh, eventually it got rediscovered and brought back again. And then we had that history again. Uh, it, it hasn't gone away for the last 400 years, but that's sort of what has been going on with history. And I say this so that you know, each of these ideas that are moving us along, it, it's not linear. It's, it, it moves in and out, moves in and out. The same thing is true about reason. Reason had a really big uh, you know, success run for four or five or 600 years after Plato and Pythagoras. And then it started to be pushed aside as getting in the way of the new culture, which was taking over in Rome and so on and so forth, um, which wasn't reason-oriented, um, but was beauty-oriented. So it's more like your imagination is more important than, than the reasoning. And, and reason really it had pockets of interest all the time all the time in different places and stuff like that. And then it revived in, in, uh, in Italy in the 1500s, and then it spread to other parts of Europe, and then, boom, we've been back with reason, with little bits of, you know, here and there saying, maybe we ought not to be doing this, but basically reason has been making inroads for, for hundreds of years now. Um, but it's also not been a linear uh, ride for reason. And education also. Education, you know, uh, all the Roman, ancient Romans, sent their uh, uh, kids to not all the ancient Romans, all the aristocratic ancient Romans, sent their kids to Athens, uh, you know, to study, just like, you know, people here will send theirs, uh, you know, to, to uh, different schools, and if they can't get in, then they bribe somebody. You know, that's, that's what we do now for education. But you see, it, it's, it's the, the process has come so that we had these universities get started a thousand years ago in Europe where they really were, were pushing it again, uh, the academy, the word academy, it comes from Plato's school. Uh, it was in a forest, and the forest is academus. That, that was the name of it. That's why the name academy is on universities ever since. It's really, uh, you know, not really, it doesn't mean university. It doesn't mean education. It just happened to be the name of the place that this got started. So um, universities today are, are using the same principle that Plato talked about with the charioteer. Because, you, know, you know, half the kids who go to college are going to party, right? 
They're not going to get educated, but they have to sit through a certain amount of education to get out and have a degree, and they want that. And partially, they're going to get something out of that education. They were induced to go there for that reason. And then there's a, a, a large number of people who go because they want to be educated. And then there's a large number of people who want to go because they want to get a good job and, and have to get qualified for that good job. But each of those possible motives for going still gets you educated to some degree. And, and it's important to remember, it's not like, oh, no one should be allowed to go get educated if they don't do it right. No, because that doing it right or they'll be punished is a cultural idea and not, not a basic idea. It's not this basic thing. Education should be and has been shifting our curve a little bit like that over the time. So those three ideas, um, nonlinear success, uh, but we are doing well with three of them right now and have for a couple hundred years. Democracy, uh, education, and reason, right? And it has shifted human uh, culture tremendously in being used so much. And it also has it shifted our personality. It seems to me that we can tell that there is some progress being made in at least the percentage of people who are in survival mode and how many are moving out of survival mode, how many are just thoroughly immersed in trying to learn more and more about what's going on and, and making progress. I'll give you a good example. If you think about the 19th century and how many people wrote books, Let's just say, I'm just going to guess because I don't really know, but somewhere like 150,000 people wrote books then, 200,000, something like that in the 19th century. Um, and, and what is the process of writing a book? At, le at least that you're abstract thinking enough that you're, and you really want to express yourself for the benefit of other people enough, if also for your own benefit to clarify something that also, that you would spend all that time doing such an abstract thing as just taking your thoughts and making them concrete in a book and then, you know, putting out in front of the world. It's an unusual thing to do. Um, and out of those 150,000 uh, authors, uh, maybe uh, 200 we still read, maybe. You know, most of them weren't worth uh, you know, it to other people, but they were worth it to them. And now what do we have? Just, just 21st century. We've got millions and millions of people writing books and, you know, and Amazon printing every single one of them. You know? And most of them sell uh, 25 copies. That's all right. Um, and most of them are, are uh, going to be just as useless to the 22nd or 23rd century as, as uh, the other ones were for that. But what's happening is that more and more and more minds are developing this abstract ability, right? And that is a very big change in the pursuit of happiness. Very big change in the pursuit of happiness because the other abstract things that we pursue in happiness are friendliness, you know, getting along with people, there's all, all, love, uh, all kinds of other emotional things that are also abstract are also going to influence our personalities. And they go together with that. Not that every writer is a, a nice person, that's for sure. But, but it, it, the, the personality moves in that direction and it can say, I'm taking abstract things and putting it into physical, my physical life. So what ideas, before we go to the future... What ideas are being, should be discarded, or not are, should be discarded, but are being discarded as a result? Because those three ideas are moving us towards a more individually uh, appropriate life. I mean, only individuals experience happiness, so it's appropriate, in, in my opinion anyway, that that's what we focus on. Um, and some ideas are, are uh, really, really completely tied up with the survival mode idea. One of those ideas is cultural hatreds. 
all the cultural hatreds, whether they're racial or gender-based or you know, activity-based and so on and so forth, they're all based on the idea that your culture says that's not good. And there is nothing inherent in the inherent pattern that says any of this is not good. So it's your culture wanting to survive versus another culture. And so you want to fight with them. Right? And, and this was true. This is true for, you know, people within one race, you know, uh, all the Indian tribes, for example, the Native American tribes in, in America, they often fought with each other. Of course, we all know that. Um, and that's been true on all, all, all races, all continents, everything, because it's that one culture versus another culture. And then when they're attacked from the outside by yet another culture, they kind of combine a little bit and fight together against that other one, just like all of our movies do for us, you know. What, whatever unites the human race, you know, right now we, we can't unite over almost anything. Whatever unites us, at least in the movies, aliens attacking us from another planet, right? Then we can all say, wait, this is our planet, you can't take us, and we certainly can't be food, you know. That's the thing that scares everybody the most. You're going to turn us into food? No, we're not food, you know. Well, we might look at all the other animals as food, but, and that's probably why we're afraid that somebody else is going to look at us as food. But this, is, this, this fear and this idea that we can unite under certain circumstances is, is based upon our experience. And, and uh, as uh, I think the, was the economist that said this about Hollywood, Hollywood takes our dreams and our fears and gives them back to us with bigger budgets and better bodies. <laughs> better bodies. <laughs> so, uh, so we have that going on. Uh, those cultural problems would gradually go down over time if we go more for individual pursuit of happiness and say, yeah, sure, your culture is just fine. We don't have to fight against your culture, but your culture is your group consensus about how to pursue happiness on top of the inherent pattern of things. And it just makes it a little bit less absolute, even for the people who believe in it. And that makes it, you less fearful about it. And when you're not fearful about it, then you're not going to be attacking other people as much. The other thing that has happened, just in a, as an aside, um, that has to do with the fact that we're more individually oriented rather than culturally oriented, is that at least in democratic uh, capitalistic societies, people have decided... <laughs> that it's more enjoyable or, 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 or wiser or more intelligent or whatever to just trade with other cultures and not have wars with them and try to destroy them. You can make more money. Everybody can be better off. And, and this attitude is, a, is like the modern-day version of the person who thought of thousands of years ago. They were all raiding each other all the time and killing each other and so on and so forth. And one person must have said, you know, we might be better off if instead of killing everybody, we just enslaved them and made them work for us. Okay. Now, that's not often thought of as a humanitarian advance, but you know, it's, you know, it's, it's different than being killed. And that was something that changed the way that people thought about things. And I think it's really uh, true about the history of slavery. It makes it clear that this is a cultural war that has taken place, and it hasn't just been racial. There's been all kinds of different versions of it, but it's always been a cultural war. Well, one group against another. And the way that you... you uh, impress your dominance or your greater importance than their culture is to either wipe them all out in a war or you know, commit genocide or to enslave them. All those different ways of impressing upon yourself, convincing yourself, whether you should be convinced by it or not, uh, that your, your culture is better off than theirs. Um, it's, it's, it, in, on an individual scale, we all do this uh, in another way. We, we admire uh, certain people. 
right? Certain writers, certain movie stars, and so on and so forth. Um, and we look up to them and, and make them into heroes when they're really not heroes and all that kind of thing. But everybody also really enjoys reading about them in the National Enquirer about all the things that they're doing wrong, right? Because you want to you admire them, but also think, yeah, but you really aren't as good as, as we think you are, right? At the same time. And almost everybody is, in, and why does that happen? You know, uh, I'll explain in a second, but almost everybody has a bump in popularity when they die. Who's, who's famous, right? There's always a bump in popularity when they die. So those two things are actually related. And the relationship is very simple. We're all individuals in this world. We all look out. We see that there's billions of other minds. And we have to have a reason why it's good to be us rather than somebody else. You have to look at life in a way that says it's important for it to be me. At the, I'm the center of the universe. Why, why isn't it more important? Because actually, you know, it's very simple. Nobody else can live your life for you. Nobody ever can do that. So you, you really are indispensable to yourself. But we exaggerate this as we exaggerate almost everything and, and push it out. And so with these people that we admire, et cetera, et cetera, we say, I admire you for all those things, but I still have to come up with a reason why it's better to be me than to be you. And so one way we do that is by reading about the lousy things about them and saying, see, they're really not as good as I thought. And the other way of doing it is, is once they're dead, it's a lot easier because then you can say, well, However good you were, you're dead, I'm alive, I win, you know. So, so that's, why we, that's why we have that approach to people uh, that we've put into that situation. Now, that's very interesting, too, uh, as an aside, uh, about the religious beliefs that, that have been most popular have always hit on that emotional center, that you are the center of the universe, that you are the emotional center of the universe. Um, Christianity, if if we just stuck to the, to the uh, Sermon on the Mount and a couple of other things that Jesus said. It probably would have been interesting, but not very popular. You know, and said, well, that was a nice guy, but he didn't really know what he was talking about because we, you can't get on with life doing things like that uh, with everybody. That's too generous. But once Paul added the idea, you know, 50 years later, that God loved each of you so much that he allowed his son to die and, 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 and be hurt, so that all of your sins could be forgiven, then that makes you individually more important than his own son. You don't think about it like that. But that's the emotional center of that statement, that theology, and that's why it's so appealing. And the same thing is true in Buddhism, and just so that I can be fair to both of them. Um, in Buddhism, Buddha, Buddha you know, had this wonderful life. He was a prince, a king, and then a king, and had a family, and he had all the wealth in us. And then he he went out and realized that there was death and suffering, and he didn't really realize that that was it. So he gave up his whole life, went out, um, lived an austere life, came up with his idea, and one of his ideas was basically that he, desire is the, is the source of all suffering in life. We have to get rid of all of our desires. Why would that ever be popular? You know, just human life is really not worth it, and therefore just give it up, and then you'll get closer to what, where you're supposed to go. That would never be popular. So what made Buddhism so popular? It was about 300 years later. It was totally unpopular in India and everywhere else. Not, not nobody was doing it, but you know, it was like way under a couple hundred thousand people were doing this. 300 years later, there was a monk, some, I think someplace in what's now Burma, and he came up with this idea, which is now called the greater vehicle, of bodhisattvas. That you know, there, were, there were minds that got right to the edge of nirvana, but instead of going into nirvana, they turned around and 
and had so much compassion for us that they're going to help us get to nirvana too. Okay? Exactly the same emotional appeal, which is the purpose of life is nirvana. The person is almost in nirvana, almost in the purpose of life, but what's more important to them than the purpose of life is to help you, to help you. That puts you as the emotional center of the universe, and that's why it was a successful idea. Um, And we don't really pay attention to that, but that's the basis of why certain ideas work. They do answer our questions better than others. So let's go back to to reason, democracy, and so on. Um, There are ideas that are being shoved slowly, very, very slowly aside. I mean, they're they're shoving back against that. But uh, the idea of socialism, for example, has been tried lots of times, and there's a problem with it. The problem, it's a very nice idea because it's like we'll all share together, right? And, And people have often found that to be a very appealing emotional idea. Why don't we just all share everything together? And, and Plato wrote about the same thing. You know, he didn't think that, that everybody in the Republic could do that, but he, all the leaders had to share. They couldn't own any property so that they couldn't steal and all that kind of stuff. They just had to share things. Um, so why doesn't it work? It doesn't work because it's like any other form of authoritarianism. It puts all the power in a few hands. And when you put all the power in a few hands, pretty soon the bullies, you know, it, it's like, it's like uh, you know, putting all the honey in one place and saying, stay away from that if you're not a nice person. No. And, and we'll, we'll say it very loudly, you know, so that you know exactly where the honey is. So uh, bullies almost always take over whenever you concentrate power in one place. And democracy and any other form of, that disperses uh, power so that people can make up their own minds. It doesn't matter what the economic system is or what it's based on, as long as it disperses power to the individuals in their pursuit of happiness, because that's what people want. Right? So, so, and if you, if you look at it, you say, why should we be optimistic about our future as a human race? Are we really moving? And I think there's another really good reason. It's just based on the same thing. If you look at World War II, at the end of World War II, which countries, you know, recovered very quickly? Japan and Germany. Ironically, they were the leaders of the, of, of the revolt or, or, or of the war in the first place. But, and, and it's not only because we helped, it's because they both had a middle class already that all wanted their individual pursuit of happiness back and were willing to delay gratification until they could get it back. 15 years in each place took only about 15 years after the war to get it back. And there are other, other countries that were also hurt and destroyed that did not have that kind of number of people who were willing to do that, and they stayed in that state for decades and decades and decades. And some haven't recovered yet. And, what, and, and that's why you can look at this and you can say, you know, what's happened in India and China in the last 30 years is that you've created a middle class of a couple hundred million people in both places. And so whatever stupid, stupid things our politicians do that could cause a problem, those people will all say, I'm not in survival mode. I mean, they don't say this, but they're no longer in survival mode. They, they know that if they do certain things, they can have a different life than just basically surviving and being miserable. And, and it, there, there, there's something in psychology and, and the test that shows that people are more willing to have equality if it's everybody miserable than it is to have inequality where some people are happy and other ones aren't. But basically it is 
you know, if we're ever going to move out of survival mode, it won't be everybody all on the same day, right? And so it has to go little by little by little. Everybody's not going to shift out of it at the same time. Now, it would be clever of us as a, as a race, as a culture and everything to figure out how to move things in a way to, to, to make the people who are in survival mode happier and have them start to move. It would be an educational thing to do, among other things. So that there are structures we should learn from what we've done over the last couple hundred years with democracy of how to do this better. But the basic idea of allowing more and more and more minds to move ahead individually and get more of what they want out of life is the power that is going to shift things forward. So um, there's lots and lots of other influences of these ideas, and there's lots of other ideas. Authoritarianism is another idea. Um, we're, we're experiencing a, a revival of it, obviously, where someone just says, I know what I'm doing, just trust me, and I'm going to do, do things my way, right? And, and you can trust me to get it done right. And uh, what it should do for most people, it reminds them of why we don't like to have those leaders, right? That they, that they often do things that don't make sense for everybody, but they are convinced that they do. So, um, as I said, none of this is linear in the way it's going, but those ideas, it's interesting, because those ideas are just thought of by somebody and say, oh, you know, maybe we should do it this way. And, and almost nobody has done it consciously. A couple of people have done it consciously. Um, knowing what they were doing. But mostly, mostly it's an expression of their personality. And so as their personality shifts more and more away to more sophisticated ways of doing things, that's it. Another, another thing you know, for, for the future um, that I think is very interesting is music. It's just a total, total aside. But music is much more interesting now, at least to us, uh, than it was at other times and before. And it's, there's a lot more variety and there's a lot more expression. Why? I think it's because... Music is an expression of our emotions. And the more we move away from fearful survival mode emotions and have all kinds of other emotions, you know, different degrees of friendship, different degrees of uh, lust, different degrees of, of uh, pursuit of uh, abstract things, that we're going to then have musicians that will express that other range of emotions and that that will be a more interesting form of music, that the cultural music will always keep shifting with the culture uh, uh, of the time because... There's always, it seems to be a certain percentage of people who think musically in expressing themselves. Um, so if they're part of the culture and the culture moves, it'll be expressed differently. So uh, I, I say that also for a form of optimism because every once in a while someone says, you know, all the music that's ever been, it's ever been conceived, it's, it'll just repeat itself. Now there's nothing new to, to be created here or there's nothing new in science or there's nothing new, you know, those are just pessimists, don't listen to them. No, I mean, it's, 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 that's not what's happening. Uh, things are shifting all the time. And the way that the shift goes, I mean, if, if you have to say that the human race has to obey your imagination the way Plato did it, then you're going to be disappointed all the time. And that's what I'm going to end up with that idea on the imagination's horizon. It's a very interesting phenomenon that you can either be absolutely miserable because of your imagination or absolutely delighted. And it's really just a choice on your part. Because your imagination will always tell you where you want to go in the future. It always, it always sees out in front of you, right? And if your imagination is a conscience that says, how come you're not out over here? How come you're not behaving the way I, you can imagine yourself to behave? Then you're always going to be beating up on yourself in your own mind about that. That's a conscience. And that, of course, has been used by lots of leaders of all kinds of cultures to try to make people change. But individually, it's not a good way to do it. Your imagination is to say, oh, you know, 
That's how once you get out to where you imagine yourself to be, you're going to see even farther and how much better. So you can be either miserable with your imagination because it's a conscience, or you can be delighted with your imagination exactly doing the same thing forever. You can always make this mistake. I always say, you know, you could, you could, uh, in, in India, they have uh, stories about Mother Divine who lives for six sextillion years. I'm really, they like big numbers. Some mathematician must have been involved in that because one lives for sextillion years, one lives for quintillion years, one lives for quadrillion years, but big, big numbers. So anyway, she lives for sextillion years. And you know, you could see her on her sextillion and, 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 and uh, on her sextillionth anniversary when she's about to die saying, it's really, really awful. I only get to live sextillion years. Why couldn't I live two sextillion years? No. That, that possibility with your imagination is always there, no matter who you are or what you're doing. Um, so it's good for anybody to step back from that and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make my imagination my imagination and my friend and not my enemy. Who, and, and it's only other people who really have made that. Because why? We're always looking at each other and always sort of saying, you could be different than you are. <laughs> Why aren't you the way I want you to be? You know? You know and, 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 and that kind of attitude, I mean, we, we do it ourselves too. We, we always hold up and say, this is who I am. You know? Don't look over here. This is who I am. Right? And the irony for all that is if anybody ever looks over and says, oh yeah, that's who you are, then you immediately don't trust their opinion anymore. <laughs> because you know they're wrong. You know that they're not seeing it. You're not seeing you accurately. And so... Because of that, because we're doing this all the time and with each other, we're always telling each other that we, you should be a little bit different than you actually are. And it's, it's, a, it's a strong-willed person that can say, yeah, it's a bunch of nonsense. And so it's not surprising at all that we're affected by a conscience, we're affected by other people's opinions about us and stuff like that. That's what's going on all the time. But I tell you, if you're ever going to go into public speaking, you have to just forget about all that. Because... And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's why uh, public speaking is actually, more people are afraid of public speaking than afraid of death. That's, and, and it's just for that reason, because when you're on stage, everyone's thinking, oh, you know, he's really bald, and, you know, he's got this wrong with him and that wrong. You know, that's, that's what's going on in the audience. And some of the time, actually, you know, some of the thoughts are listened to. But I hope some of those ideas were somewhat useful. So I'll open up to Q&A for, if you'd like. In your mind, what was the purpose of this lecture? <laughs> Apparently to drive you crazy. <laughs> oh, the, the, purpose, the purpose of it was to celebrate, to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Monday Night Philosophy here at the Commonwealth Club and, and to then say, um, you know, really philosophy is very, very important. The ideas that underlie our culture, the, uh, an explanation of what we're really doing, because scientists who have taken from philosophy the reasoning ability and everything like that, they think that nothing else other than what can be proved mathematically and everything is of any use at all. And everything that does not fall into, anything that can't be measured should be ignored. Well, most of our life cannot be measured. So, so we don't want to really ignore the rest of our lives. Um, at least I don't. But it can be analyzed in a way which is extremely useful and is, is just as reasonable as the math. And that's, that's why I started the Monday Night Philosophy thing and why I wanted to keep going. But George, we can measure yeah. everything. It, I'm sorry. Everything is measurable. We, if you can't, then you just don't have the techniques. So everything, every person's emotions can be quantified. Uh, yeah. I, I certainly don't agree with that. But do, what I would like to say, uh, George, first of all, thank you very much. And congratulations. Happy anniversary. Our culture in America 
has this idea of the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. Most cultures don't have that. That's not the number one thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's very, uh, in many ways, it's obnoxious because of the American idea of the pursuit of happiness. You shouldn't have to pursue happiness. And I really question that, and it's too uh, short a time to really go into a deep mm-hmm. conversation on that. But I'd like to point that out, and I'd like to also say, uh, looking at my birds every single day, I start thinking of myself, because we are all in the survival mode, no matter if it's to the last second, and it's amazing when people on their deathbed still want to survive. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I thought this was very illuminating, as always, one of your talks, but um, ego has a lot to do with some of this pursuit of happiness, writing a book and things like that, and being on the stage and wherever. Uh, and so uh, that's the one thing that's really uh, riveted me, the difference of American thought compared to other countries, the way they think of happiness. Thank you very much. Well, I'd, I'd like to say a little bit about that. Um, first of all, I don't think uh, the pursuit of happiness is in one of the inherent patterns, as far as I see it. It's one of the inherent patterns because you have desires, and you want to fulfill them. If you don't have any desires, you're, you're really not paying attention. Everyone has desires. And, 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 and it, you, you, if you want to fulfill them, which you do, then you're pursuing happiness. That's what the pursuit of happiness is, according to my. That's the emotion that causes. And if you don't fulfill a desire, that's what unhappiness is. So you're trying to avoid non-fulfilling the desires. Now, what, what's interesting to me is that most people don't pay attention to that desire thing. If you're intelligent about how you desire, you make this whole process a lot better. That's not what people focus on. Okay? So uh, what, what's ironic for me is uh, there's a lot of cultures say uh, life is a veil of tears, life is suffering, so on and so forth. We have to work together for our whole group. You know, but the group doesn't experience anything, as I said before. But those are what the cultures have concluded. And um, yes, it's hard to, to... The more people are pursuing their own individual thing in, inside a culture like America, the more it's like herding cats, as they say, you know, and, and it gets more and more complicated. But that's all right, because at least there's more happiness, in my opinion. And the pursuit of happiness, as far as the ones who say it's not a good idea, if, if even Buddha said desire is the whole problem, so what you should do is get to nirvana. Getting to nirvana is a desire. You're desiring to get to nirvana. And so it's, you haven't eliminated all desire. You just got people on a one-focus thing. And if you think everything you do in life, you shouldn't do for your own will. You should do it for God's will. And if you do it all for God's will, then you'll go to heaven. I can tell you, if heaven wasn't described as enjoyable, then nobody would do it. If they found out, okay, if, you, if your religion was, you do it all for God's will, and when you die, if you do it right, you're going to be sent to hell and you're going to suffer forever, but you still have to do God's will. Don't think you'd have a really big, you know, large number of people doing that religion. Um, so inherent in all the ideas that say that happiness is not important, there is the pursuit of happiness. It's unavoidable. Thank you. Yep. Yep. Let me see if I can remember my question. Um, so when you were talking about, um, I guess, the masses or the people wanting to make a change and basically say, no, we're not going to do that, it made me start thinking about the women's march mm-hmm. and i think i mean would you think that in today the women's march is that type of a movement or a- absolutely it was actually in my notes and i didn't mention it it's one of the reasons i'm very optimistic okay right now you know there's a flat earth society right a, what? a flat earth society 
There's still a flat earth society. I don't know how many people are involved, a thousand, a hundred out of, out of the entire human race or whatever. But they still believe that, that it's all faked. All the, all the pictures of the sphere are all faked and all that kind of stuff. So that's where I expect the, the, uh, a couple hundred years from now, the people who said that women can't be educated. Right? Because the 20th century showed that all women could be educated. Or, you know, not every single one. Everyone can be educated. How far they can be educated, you don't know. But education is just leading people out of where they are and giving them more uh, ability to, to use their abilities, to not be so afraid of using their ability. It's actually just a decrease of fear more than anything else. And, and of course, you, fear has been used to keep people in their place in all kinds of different ways. And I know it's not the same, but you know, there's all kinds of white men that are in, you know, kept in fear by other white men <laughs> you know, to, to, to not do anything either because they want to stay on top. And if you go watch the orangutans in the zoo, you'll see exactly the same operation going on. So our simian behavior is extremely clear. So, uh, but in this case, you, you just have to look at it and you say, that piece of information, that cultural belief that women shouldn't be educated has been totally disproved by millions and millions of counterexamples. Same thing with races and minorities. Minorities can all be educated. And by minorities, I mean anyone who is not Han Chinese, right? Because that's the... That's, that's the one that's the biggest. So, so everybody, this, this is an individual mind thing. Even, even you know, uh, gorillas can be educated, as we found out, and, and other animals can be educated. You can educate a mind. You, you can't educate them to do physics, theoretical physics. You can't educate most human minds to do theoretical physics either. So that's all right. But you can take any mind and you can lead them on to do other things. That's what minds are like. So education, that idea of education, I think is digging in deeply because of the 20th century. And I, and, and I also think that all those ideas about individual groups, as I said right at the beginning, that, that uh, whether it's based on race or gender or any other thing, even intelligence, it's very important, you know, because obviously I like intelligence and like philosophy and everything, but I don't think there should be these rules about, you know, every person's level of intelligence makes them a member of human society. And, and you don't have to be intelligent to be a functioning member of human society. It's very important to, to, to make that distinction for people who think about things to realize that they, they ought not to draw that line either because that's also a slippery slope. Every individual can pursue their happiness the way they do it. And if they do it really simply, that's okay. If they do it with theoretical physics, that's okay. And I think that that is countercultural against cultures that have decided certain things are allowed. You can't ask other questions, right? You can't ask other questions. You can't you can't educate women because what would happen then? They won't do our dishes anymore or whatever, you know. You, you, you can't, you, you can't uh, teach our slaves anything because then they're going to uh, revolt and they won't do our work anymore for us and so on and so forth. So freedom is, is, is all a part of this. But also the inherent pattern will, will eliminate, you know, undercut those cultural ideals. And, and over time, although the culture would stay about the same, but it'll adjust to that and it will, it will have to loosen up. The same thing is true about sexual behavior. You know, people have said, oh, that's terrible. Any, any particular thing outside of a, you know, but it, the more and more our population grows, the less and less people will care about this, you know, those, those issues too. So there's lots of things that are affecting it. But, but as, far as, as far as I can see, it's the group versus the group culture versus the inherent pattern on this issue. And, and the inherent pattern is winning uh, that when we go to individuals, we're going to undercut a lot of those cultural uh, attempts to depress other groups, whatever they are, whatever they are. Yeah. 
I think um, the pursuit of happiness is a mechanism to bring about change. In other words, because if a person is looking for happiness and they make a choice and they don't get it, then it's a tool to make them change so they can be happier with their next choice. We can use it that way. That, that's the intelligent use of it. But I, I think that the inherent pattern doesn't have any real desire about what we do with it. You know, the inherent pattern is just, just like gravity does not care whether we pay attention to it or not. I think the inherent pattern that we, our minds, excuse me, pursue desire and, and pursue in, in the pursuit of happiness and try to avoid pain. It's, it's a totally um, neutral fact about life. Uh, let me use an analogy and then we'll wrap this up. Um, the difference between cultures and the inherent pattern is a lot like in baseball. The rules of the game of baseball are like the inherent pattern. Three strikes and you're out. You know, uh, there's nine innings. There's two teams, that kind of thing. The cultures are like the coaching techniques. Okay, we're going to focus our team on our offense, or we're going to have to have a balance between offense and defense, or we're going to just be totally defensive in the way we play the game. Or we're going to cheat like crazy whenever we can because I've bribed the umpires, you know, and so we're going to get away with it. So the way you play the game from a coaching point of view is the culture. The rules of the game are neutral. It just sets up the rules of the game. Now, that was a created game, obviously. In this case, I think this is not a created game. This is just inherent in the way life is. So that's the difference between the analogy. But the analogy is very useful from the point of view of seeing what do I mean by a culture and what do I mean by the inherent pattern? Because you, the inherent pattern, the rules of the game, doesn't have any ethical content or anything like that. Uh, you can use it however you want to. Um, the irony for me, of course, uh, is that we haven't noticed that the more intelligently we, we use those patterns, the more we pursue happiness and the more intelligent we do that, actually the more virtuous we become. They're very totally connected. They're totally connected in our pursuit of happiness. Um, there's a few, there's one anomaly because it's based on a culture thing and that's obedience. Obedience is considered to be a virtue. I think it's a vice and it's caused us, it's caused us uh, a, a great deal of, of uh, unhappiness as a result. Next talk. Next talk. <laughs> Thank you very much.